0: This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bauerfeind premium braces and supports. Bauerfeind promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. This is your host Dr. Linda Bluestein. Today, Jennifer Milner and I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Eileen Ruhoy, board-certified neurologist with a PhD in environmental toxicology and a graduate of the integrative medicine program fellowship at the University of Arizona. She is the medical director and founder of the Center for Healing Neurology in Seattle, Washington, and is the co-editor of Integrative Neurology, an Oxford Press book expected to be released at the end of summer 2020. Dr. Ruha was kind enough to have me as a guest on her podcast, Healing Neurology, very recently, and I highly suggest subscribing to both her podcast and this one, Bendy Bodies. Dr. Ruhoi, hello, and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Hello, thank you for having me. It's so great to talk with you today.
1: Thank you.
2: I thought was a great movie. she is Jenna, <laughs> <she's gonna laughs> Hop in with the first question. I am, but I just didn't want to be like, and I'm Jennifer. <laughs> but hi, Dr. Ruhoy, It's nice to meet uh, you. Nice <laughs> to meet you. Welcome. <laughs> so you comment in your excellent blog that you are seeing more symptoms and disease associated with the brain and that there has been an increase in stroke incidence in young adults as well as an increase in early onset cognitive decline. When and how should we be protecting our brains?
1: we should start protecting our brains. I think as soon as we are aware of our brains, <laughs> I think that's <laughs> hard to say as a mom of a teenager, I know that she literally has no sense of like her health and mortality and, and all of that. So I think getting her to sort of follow my, uh, my guidelines or, you know, the. Or my rules <laughs> is very difficult to do, but I do suggest that early in life early adulthood is actually the best time there's been a lot of research to show that the things that we do in life and our in terms of lifestyle choices can have great nerve protective properties for our brain um, for years to come and so the sooner we get on top of how we sleep and how we eat and how we move, how we manage stress, I think the better off we are as we age because we lose resilience we lose reserve we're at greater risk for Responses to exposures, we have greater risk for certain kinds of um, chronic disease. So, the sooner we do it, the better off we
0: are. Oh, I agree with that. Dr. Ruhai, would you be willing to elaborate <laughs> slightly and tell us how we can be protecting our brains? So, there's a lot of things
1: that we actually know now about the physiology of our brains and the health of our brains. And we do know, for example, take our nutrition choices. We do know that you know foods can be pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory, and so the more times that we choose anti-inflammatory foods, the better off our brains are. and because there's a very strong connection between the gut and the brain. And so if we reduce inflammation in the gut, we reduce inflammation in the brain. there's a lot of crosstalk that goes on. So the gut brain axis is a real thing, and in fact, An altered microbiome is very much associated with neurodegenerative diseases, things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and some of the other neurodegenerative diseases. We know that there are changes to the microbiomes of the patients who have a neurodegenerative diagnosis. So we do know that what we eat actually plays a tremendous role, and I think that, and I advocate for a plant-based diet. I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm I'm almost militant about it. Um, But I I also recognize that if you've been eating more of a standard American diet for many years, it does take baby steps. So we don't expect miracles, you know, quickly, but we do have to, every meal is a chance to make a choice, right? Every meal is a chance to decide I'm going to eat a healthy anti-inflammatory meal today. I often recommend starting the morning off with juicing. I think that it's very hard to sit down and eat three bunches of kale, but you can juice three bunches of kale and you can add an apple and a lemon and make it taste good. And then in the morning when our diet <laughs> tracks is so, there's so, it's so naive, I, I, I refer to it as, because we fasted all night long. So there are there's, there isn't the presence of work. So there isn't the acid and the enzymes. And so when you drink just sort of a pure homemade juice with lots of healthy, vegetables and, and fruits, it's just so quickly absorbed. And it's really a great way to start the day. The cells just sort of uptake all of those nutrients and compounds. And, and it starts in an anti-inflammatory state at the beginning of the day. I think that that I learned that a little bit late in life after my brain surgery and radiation. I learned that juicing actually made the biggest difference in terms of my recovery of my brain. Um, I wish I had started a lot earlier. Now I find myself preaching it to anyone who will listen, basically. <laughs> so I think that the food we eat is a, very, is a very important part of our lifestyle choices that we can make that will protect our brain later on. I also think that the way we exercise, you know, I think we need to move every day and that doesn't mean obviously to climb Mount Everest or you know, to be a triathlete. It just means we need some form of movement. Our bodies are meant to be in motion. Um, And so sitting all day at a desk, obviously, and on the screens, which is what a lot of our culture does, um, you know, does not provide for a good blood flow that obviously includes all organs, but specifically the brain. Um, It also doesn't help to sort of reduce some of the pro-inflammatory mediators that are released based on just exposures that we have nothing, um, we have really, we have very little control over. And so I think that we have to try to find ourselves moving every day. In fact, studies show that if you just go out for walks or... Hikes uh, out in nature every day. Nature has a very um, important effect on our brain and our central nervous system in general. So I always you know, tell patients, those, so combine, combine exposure to nature with some exercise. And, and again, it can just be a, a nice brisk walk, at, at least out in nature, a nice hike out in nature. Um, and those have very positive effects on the brain. And then how we sleep is so important. We know that the glymphatic system of the brain is most active during the night when we're sleeping, during restorative stages. The lymphatic system, of course, being the lymphatic system of the brain, where it, it rids itself of the metabolic waste byproducts. And so that is, is much more active while we sleep. And so the amount and quality of sleep is, is super important. And, and that's a whole topic of it and of itself, I, I recognize. And we can talk a lot about sleep hygiene um, and ways of really improving that sleep. But I will say that I think our the way we live these days, our culture really sort of lends itself to us you know, having altered sleep patterns. And so I always talk about trying to go to bed at the same time each night, trying to wake up at the same time each morning, trying to have a routine during the day, because, you know, sleep is, you know, the sleep-wake cycle is not only sleep, but it's the wake portion. And so Mm -hmm. what you do during that wake portion can actually help set you up for success during the sleep cycle. So I, you know, I go through all the different kinds of great sleep-wake hygiene options that you can incorporate into your life that will only be really um, beneficial for your brain. So those are some options. I mean, obviously, I, I can go on and on. But,
2: yeah. <laughs> but so basically, basically, you're saying to eat well and exercise and sleep well. Right. Use less, right? Left, right? <laughs> right? Huge groundbreaking right here. <laughs> and yet we... You
1: know, there was just an article that just came out in one of the uh, neuroimmunology journals that talked about spinal cord injury and the standard American diet, the Western diet they refer to it. <laughs> and it showed that actually injury of spinal cord... Um, I'm sorry. Healing of spinal cord injuries was much more robust with a plant-based, non-westernized type of diet. So basically, an anti-inflammatory diet.
2: Mm-hmm. So, the, wow,
1: the is that to have an inflammatory diet does so much more damage to our bodies, especially in when it, a, our bodies need to be in a state of healing. And I would argue that just because of the things in our air and our water and um, our food, I would argue that we're always in a state of healing, especially as we're aging, right? So maybe not mm-hmm. the 18-year-olds as much, but definitely the 40-year-olds, you know, and then the 50-year-olds, and the 60-year-olds, and so on. So I think we're always in a state of healing. I think that our bodies are constantly degenerating and regenerating. And so the more that we can support that regeneration, I think the healthier we will be for a much longer period of time.
2: Well, and it's a great, um, it's a great point of view to say our bodies are constantly in a state of healing, to have people understand that our body is constantly in a state of breaking down, and also healing. And so if we can look at it as, do we want to constantly be turning towards breaking down or do we want to be constantly working towards one of these directions and and both in some way are going to be happening. So if they're going to be happening, we might as well encourage it and rather rather than waiting until, oh, I've had a spinal cord injury. Now I shall change my diet and my lifestyle. Right. That's exactly right. I
1: absolutely 100% agree. 100%. We need yes. to sort of support the regenerative aspect, right? And that's what our body is. I mean, if you think about the bones, right, the osteoblasts and osteoclasts,
2: mm-hmm. osteoclasts, right,
1: bone turnover. So it, that goes on throughout our bodies throughout our lives. So mm-hmm. we want to support the regenerative aspect, and as we mm-hmm. age, that sort of needs more support. Um, and so that's what we should all be designed to do on a daily basis as much as we can. And you know, listen, I recognize these are this is hard, right? I mean, I think changing human behaviors is notoriously difficult, right? It's it's very right. challenging. And so that's why I always say the sooner you can, you can start, the better off you'll be, but it's never too late is what I always say. Never too late. And even if it's just baby steps at the beginning, but we should think about it as supporting regeneration.
2: Yes. I love that. Um, supporting regeneration. So these are steps that pretty much anybody can take, like speaking to a very general population. Um, We are, in general, um, the podcast provides information to to patients and healthcare professionals about hypermobility disorders and its related conditions. So can you start out telling us what conditions you treat that affect this Bendy population?
1: I treat MCAS, mast cell activation syndrome. I treat a lot of dysautonomias. We do a lot of autonomic testing, and I find many of these patients have a history of hypermobility, Um, So we see a lot of different dysautonomias, including the very commonly seen uh, POTS, as well Mm -hmm. as more static uh, intolerance. Um, We find some other kinds of dysautonomias as well. We treat um, small fiber neuropathy, which I find, again, a lot of of times is a history of hypermobility. And then we treat chronic fatigue syndrome. And and as you probably know, um, that is very much associated with the hypermobile population. In fact, I often see um, a CCI kind of picture, cranial cervical instability. Um, And it's because the ligaments are so lax that they are Mm -hmm. creating that over chronic fatigue, which ultimately, I think, stems from... Some form of chronic in, inflammation, and so if you're already starting at a baseline with ligamentous laxity just from your genetics, and then you add chronic inflammation on top, then I think that you it, you are at greater risk of some of the um, comorbidities we see with the hypermobility population. And so I treat most of all of that. I don't treat the hypermobility per se, and I certainly don't call myself a hypermobility expert, as Dr. Blusine is. But um, we definitely treat. MCAS, small fiber neuropathy, dysautonomia a lot of gastrointestinal dysfunction. You know, we see SIBO as well as other kinds of gastroparesis and constipation. And again, we see a lot of that because of the gut-brain axis. So it's like it's, people will come because they have a neurological manifestation, but we ask a lot of gut questions and we find that there's a whole history there as well. Mm. So that, that, that's what Jillian does. Um, so she's sort of a gut to my brain kind of, <laughs> so we see all of those kinds of different, uh, diseases and, or, and symptomology that we help treat.
2: So it really goes beyond if somebody is hypermobile and they think, well, I'll go see my neurologist about my migraines. Um, right. they may find a host of other things that you can help address that they may not even yeah. Be understood. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, uh,
1: very often I get patients who come in who have been told they have fibromyalgia and, uh, mm-hmm. I think that it's not uh, true fibromyalgia, but more that they have hypermobility and now they have headaches and they have, you know, joint and muscle pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can argue about what does fibromyalgia specifically mean because it can fit under the, under its, you know, proposed definition. Certainly there's clearly a lot more going on there because of their hypermobility, which wasn't, you know, initially identified.
2: Right, right. Well, and uh, there, there is a fair amount of people with Hypermobility, who have migraines and chronic headaches, and that does seem to be a big piece that goes along with it. Um, what should patients and providers, what should they know about headaches, uh, migraines, and and facial pain in in bendy people, bendy bodies?
1: <laughs> I think it, it. I think it happens a, a, a lot. <laughs> I haven't done you know epidemiology to give. You know, appropriate statistics, but I I see it more often than I don't see it, frankly. And so it's a I think there's a very common ideology there. I think that when Mm -hmm. you have um, any kind of um, uh, connective tissue disorder, it leads to myofascial pain, just because the body isn't held together well. And so there's inflammation in the connective tissue, and so inflammation in the fascial planes, and that ultimately you know will hold up the neck and the head, and you often have neck pain, which then leads to headaches. And if there's a predisposition for migraines that can evolve into migrainous types of headaches. They're not always migraines and sometimes they're just headaches. And people like to label everything as a migraine, but migraine has actually has a very specific definition and, and mm-hmm. it's I think because a lot of the drugs are very um, they're targeting more of the migraine physiology and that sometimes is the case without question in hypermobile patients and very often there's a migraine history not only personal but family history and, uh, and they are having migraines and some of the newer drugs have been very effective for them but I think that there's an overall pain picture is my point.
2: Mm-hmm. And so I, think
1: I see a lot of what we refer to as cutaneous allodynia so like the scalp you know is painful and then there's a lot of, you know, cervicalgia, which where the, where the neck is painful and um, they have a lot of trigger point issues. And I, I think it's just because the connective tissue sort of holds it all together. And if it's mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, if it's not strong enough and it's, and if it's got, you know, reasons to, to sort of be a little bit lax, then you are ultimately set up for a lot of this type of pain syndrome.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting to me um, because it, 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 like you said, migraines are a very specific type of headache and then you see people who suffer with these chronic headaches and um, Dr. Bluestein and I share someone who has one of those and and you see people who've had headaches for years or, or whatever might be going on and without addressing the fascial component of it and trying to address that and the, the chronic pain that comes from it, it's really difficult to try to be successful with dealing with a headache.
1: I completely agree, and I'm actually shocked at how many patients' headaches um, are abated with a mast cell type of treatment, which I don't think is um, mm-hmm. conventional, um, but you know, sometimes you can go down the list of all the headache and migraine medications that we know of um, and, then, and not really get any kind of relief, but you start treating a mast cell kind of concern that may only present as headaches, frankly. Um, in some patients and then you start treating it as a mast cell problem and they finally get relief and it's interesting to me and you know it's because the the brain the central nervous system has h3 receptors which are not really found anywhere else and we all know about the h1 h2 receptors and everyone's on the antihistamines for that but the h3 receptors are very unique um, and are ubiquitous throughout the central nervous system and not necessarily elsewhere and so i think that there's some relation there to mast cell degranulation and these headaches in in hypermobile patients Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't often just sort of jump to a mast cell treatment if there's no obvious other reason to think mast cell, but when I'm not getting relief from headaches with patients who have tried the gamut of things that we have, including the blocks, you know, which might give transient relief, the trigger point injections, even some of the other, you know, vagal nerve kind of stimulators. Mm -hmm. I'm not getting permanent kind of and sustained relief. And I will go down a mast cell route and will often, not always,
2: but often get relief from of their headaches. That's so interesting and, and encouraging, too. Um, something else that we see just in the general, well, I have all these weird things going on with me because I have a bendy body, um, is the whole brain fog thing. Yes. So I'm wondering, how do you work up and treat brain fog and or other cognitive complaints?
1: So uh, I think brain, the, ty- the, word, the words brain fog I think <laughs> are patients like perception, of what they're experiencing. And so I'll often just sort of do a cognitive assessment initially, just to sort of get objective data as to where their cognition sits. Is there a true cognitive concern? Um, But I also think that the brain fog experience is related to the dysautonomia that is very often seen with hypermobile patients. Um, A recent study that was just published that talked about changes in position that provoked the autonomic nervous system resulted in change in cognition and change in awareness. And when I read that, I thought that's exactly why I tried to sort of pin down patients as to what their brain fog experience is like. That is exactly how they describe it. Like their, their environment seems different, their interaction, they, they feel slower. They can't process things as, as, as easily or as, as quickly. Um, and so there are studies that support that the autonomic nervous system, when, when it, it's engaged in an aberrant manner, as it so often is in hypermobility, um, they can have alterations in awareness and mentation and cognition that can be, that is usually transient um, until things sort of settle down. Um, You know, I think it's, it's sort of, I think that's a piece of that puzzle with regards to the brain fog. Um, So, and then also I think that the whole, you know, cranial cervical instability, actually, we do know that um, things like tethered cords and things like cranial cervical instability does um, result over time, obviously not acutely or initially necessarily, but over time does result in some hypoperfusion of the cord and or the brainstem and I think that that too, you know, so hyperinfusion, so you know, if you think about what happens when there's lack of appropriate oxygen supply, I think that too can lead to the brain fog kind of experience mm-hmm. patients have. So I think it's multifactorial. I don't think that science has really sort of pinned down specifically what it is, but that is exactly how I approach it, um, because that's how I see it. And, um, and, you know, we, we will sometimes get good results based on that, those kinds of perspectives um, and insights. But again, there's obviously a lot more to it that was still trying sure. and
2: Absolutely. Um, I wanted to circle back. You were talking about with migraines that you would um, look into the, uh, the possibility of mast cell activation syndrome and mm-hmm. perhaps treating them with that protocol. Um, what should we know about mast cell activation syndrome, especially as it pertains to the bendy body population?
1: Well, we know well mast cells are ubiquitous in their body, but we also mm-hmm. know that they are a lot in large numbers in the connective tissue. So I think it's um, I think it's it's very easy to understand why there's such a, a high percentage of of MCAS in the hypermobile population. Um, And, you know, when they degranulate, so mast cells are of course part of the innate immune system and uh, they are poised basically to help us fight off things that assault us, right? So, you know, in our environment, whether it's infections or exposures, Um, And so when they're triggered so often, and uh, when they're so exposed as they are in hypermobile hypermobile patients, because there are so many in the connective tissue, um, they tend to get a little trigger happy and they tend to degranulate a little bit too often or at the drop of a hat kind of thing. Um, And so they're constantly releasing their mediators and we're always talking about histamine and yes, histamine does play a large role in a lot of the symptomology we see. But it has lots of other mediators, most of which are pro-inflammatory. So the tryptases and the proteases and the prostaglandins and the bradykinins and leukotrienes and so on. And so if these are being released at a at a frequent rate in the body, then you're going to have lots of inflammatory mediators that are that want to find something to fight, basically. And so mm.
2: um,
1: so with with these release, it just sort of again, it, it first of all, it leads up to more potential laxity of the ligaments, so more connective tissue issues, more fascial pain issues and more headaches. And so that's why sometimes just by, you know, sort of calming down the mast cell activity, you can actually have a relief of quite a bit of pain, no matter where the pain is, but again, you know, because we focus a lot on headaches and migraines here, uh, we do see a lot of improvement in that kind of pain.
2: That's so interesting and encouraging. Um, so going deeper with um, mast cell activation system what, or syndrome, what can you tell us about MCAS and meningiomas? Oh, <laughs> I, <laughs> uh,
1: that, so I, I know where that came from, Dr. Blue Chair. <laughs> <laughs> And to be honest, I don't yet have a great answer. I'm that w- I posed it because I have have a personal history of meningioma, and the more I read, the more I recognize. And um, so, so uh, w- in 2015, I um, I was not feeling well, and I I went to a lot of my colleagues, but you know it was thought that I was just working too hard and I was too stressed. And the truth is, I was working too hard and I was too stressed. <laughs> <and whatnot. laughs> <laughs> so I believed it, but I just sort of knew something wasn't, wasn't right, and I was having more and more headaches, and I think because I, I have a personal history of migraines, they have not been frequent in my life, maybe one a year, but I was having them very often, um, but I think that it was just sort of chalked up to stress, was making more migraines, and I believed it for a long time, but things just started to get worse. I was feeling unwell, um, and despite the fact that everything came back normal, including my labs and my neuro exam, I had no deficits. Everyone just sort of thought, just you know, meditate and take a break, um, which I'd already been doing. But um, I, I, um, I, I kept asking for an MRI and out here in Seattle at that time, you couldn't order your own MRI, um, but no one would do it. Everyone would just sort of say, oh, you know too much, you're thinking too much about this, do an MRI. Anyway, long story short, I finally just went to a friend of mine who's an internist and just sort of asked, you know, please order me an MRI and she did. And so I went to the MRI machine and as I come out, the tech um, uh, told me to go directly to the ER. And I said, why? And he said, I don't know, because the radiologist didn't tell me, just told me to tell you to go to the ER. I thought, okay. So I went to the ER and uh, it turns out I had a a seven centimeter um, meningioma that was basically pushing, that had grown into my brain and so pushed my left hemisphere over to my right. And there was a lot of swelling around it because of it. And so everyone was sort of shocked that I had no neuro deficit. um, And everyone was sort of shocked that I, didn't have more um, symptoms actually. And I think it was because it probably grew insidiously. So, but regardless, it was big and I was admitted right away um, for uh, surgical resection. So I had surgical resection um, and then I it recurred a year later. And so then I had brain radiation. So it sort of, and then the, the pathology came back that it, it was a grade three, which is the worst type to have, which means there's likely, you know, recurrence and, um, Anyway, my point being is that so because of all of that, I start, and I was now now in the in the whole mast cell world. I had posed a question to leaders in the mast cell world um, and asked about you know the I had read about um, mast cells and histamine and meningiomas, and so went down that path. And I, I don't yet really have a, an accurate enough answer for me to sort of you know counsel other people to be fair. But I think that uh, we sent off uh, my tissue because my husband's a pathologist. And so um, <laughs> it wasn't really it, it didn't it, it wasn't defender in anything it, it was sort of equivocal ultimately in what it what how, what kind of role mast cells can play, to be completely honest, but mm-hmm. I do think it plays a role, and I, I think when I think back to some of the symptoms I, were, I was having, it, it's actually some of the same symptoms I see my mast cell patients have, which is just sort of not being able to tolerate, food. I, I constantly felt nauseous, right, so it was these vague type of symptoms that, like, maybe I just am eating the wrong foods, or maybe I'm just not sleeping well enough, you know, those kinds of things, those where I couldn't tolerate meals, I was constantly feeling nauseous and, and bloated, and I felt dizzy often, um, you know, so... it it very much sounds like my mast cell patient. So I I do think there's a role, but again, I don't think there's any real science right now for me to report, but I continue to look and read and research. So,
2: (laughs) but that's something that would be great to, to see some research on in the future, for sure.
1: I completely agree. I completely agree.
2: Yes. Well, I could um, pick your brain for about 36 hours and not be finished, (laughs) but (laughs) not everybody has a chance to sit and talk with you one-on-one so what do you suggest to that people do if they're having difficulty getting help and and what appointment options are you offering patients right now especially out of state and out of country
1: so um i think well first of all the options that we offer we do a, a lot of telemedicine and even before COVID 19 we were doing telemedicine televideo we have a lot of patients who don't live in washington state So we are very equipped to offer either phone or video. um, And so that hasn't changed at all. So that's always an option, of course. Um, But I do think that there's a lot of uh, doctors out there that are really learning more and more. And I'm always impressed by how many more there are in the mast cell world, or at least how many more that are showing interest Mm and want to learn. And I think there's a lot of literature now, a lot of good literature for patients, and I, I often will share certain resources with them, but there's a couple of things that people can do. You know, antihistamines are over the counter, right? So you don't need a doctor to necessarily prescribe them. And so, you know, I, we, you know, so they can try at the, uh, on their own, even, you know, Claritin and Allegra, of course, following instructions on the box. Um, right. <laughs> um, You know, but just sort of recognize that it's not, it's a a lot, a lot of it is the histamine, but it may not be the only histamine because there are other mediators. But then, and so sometimes you really need mast cell stabilizers, which are really are prescribed by physicians. And I think that, um, but you can definitely see if you get any kind of relief from the antihistamines that you can easily buy in a drugstore. There are some supplements that are particularly helpful, like quercetin is one of my favorites, Mm -hmm. um, as well as something called PEA, palmitoyl Mm ethanolamide. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I love, love that it. one. We I are know. both fans of that. <laughs> <laughs> I just chugged some right before this. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's a lipid autacoid that has incredible anti-inflammatory effects, actually. And actually, what it really is good for is that it helps to, you know, when we have chronic inflammation, so if we have mast cell activation, we have this perpetual inflammatory cascade and we ultimately lose that stop gap, that natural stop gap that our bodies have to sort of stop that inflammation and stop it in its tracks. Mm -hmm. PEA actually, with, with regular use, with consistent use of it, actually helps to stop that cascade. So it sort of breaks the inflammatory pathways. And so it's really powerful to sort of get everything under control. So I really and I and it worked, and there's a sort of a synergistic effect with quercetin. I actually love it together. I find it much more effective than either one of them alone. And I generally just start patients there. I'm not a huge fan of like putting someone on, you know, 20 different supplements. I feel like that's not really great medicine, plus you don't know interactions. And I think if you are targeting something in specific, I think you find you know, the, the four or five that really work for you. So I always just sort of start patients on, on quercetin and PEA, and then it may add a couple of others uh, a little bit down the road. Um, but I find that patients do get a response from it. But, and then I, you know, like I said, there's some prescribed medications like the Chromalin and the ketotifen and the Lodos naltrexone, of which I'm fans of certainly... Um, but that does require a prescription. So, But again, more and more physicians are really coming on board with mast cell kinds of concerns. I mean, it used to be, as you guys know, used to be either nothing or mastocytosis. <laughs> and now we know there's a whole spectrum in between, and, and a lot of people fall in that spectrum. And I think that other doctors are actually starting to recognize that.
0: Which, which is great, and which is what is is exciting to me about both your podcast and this one, and I know you and I also do a little bit on social media from time to time when we have when we have <laughs> spare time, which isn't which isn't very often. I I know for you for sure, but um, I love it when a, when a colleague will say, "Oh, I learned this and this on your podcast," and they may ask a question, or again, then they start to look for that in their patients, which mm-hmm. is is you know really gets me excited because that means that we're reaching people that have the ability to influence a lot of people's lives. so I
1: completely agree, completely agree. And I, that's why I love podcasts, actually, because I find that we can reach people that wouldn't other, otherwise have access to us, you know? And so right. I love yes. that idea of really helping other people.
0: Yes, yes, abso- absolutely. And, and you and I met um, in an international group, uh, the Mastermind Group, and we yes. collaborate there and talk about complex patients. And I, I love it. It's such a great place to... To really learn, and of course, de-identified. Of course, all, all of any of these um, conversations that we have, and we talk about these overlapping conditions, including you know, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, dysautonomia, as You've mentioned mast cell activation syndrome, autoimmune disorders, and um, gastrointestinal problems. And can you tell us? You know, in terms of and I know some people call that the pentad because it happens to be five things um, <laughs> in, in in your practice um are you seeing a lot of that of that overlap of of those five things, or are you seeing different things um and what approach do you take and do you have you identified any prognostic factors that's a big qu- big question yeah. So- <laughs>
1: First of all, I, I don't want to call it a pentad. I think I'm up to eight fingers now.
2: So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, octab, I
1: don't An I know.
2: An octad. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: because there, there is so much, and you're absolutely right. right. There is so much. And so um, I just basically go down the list. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, there's no blueprint, in, in my opinion. I mean, I suppose to some extent there is, because we sort of know the organ systems we want to cover. But I just sort of listen to the patient's story and you know I find that if I just let them start speaking they will go they will tell me about you know at least three of the five of the pentad and then I'll ask the rest of the questions and I'll get them more and then I dive deeper and I get I get other organ systems involvement or other kinds of symptoms that I that maybe I hadn't thought about in more conventional kind of pentad presentations I um, mean then my approach um, is that I basically start with a diagnostic workup just so I can really understand maybe where in that Pentad or Octad or Petrad, um, I can start to try to treat. And the things that we talked about already, like the the antihistamines and the mast cell stabilizers and the supplements, I think applies to most. So I, I tend to start that fairly soon on, but I do do autonomic testing, as I said, we do the full, breath of autonomic testing. It's not just the tilt table. We do the heart rate, deep breathing, the Valsalva, the QSAR. Mm-hmm. We do skin biopsy for the small fiber neuropathy. Um, Jillian does a lot of gut type of testing. Um, sometimes I'll even do an EMG nerve conduction study because they describe sometimes large fiber neuropathies. I, I see CIDP often in this um, population. Mm-hmm. And when I say often, I don't mean often, often. <laughs> I just mean more than I would expect. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So uh, sometimes I'll do a nerve conduction study. Um, and then we do a lot of labs and I do a, a large autoimmune workup because I really do believe, so the mast cells, as I said, are part of the innate immune system. And so when they're chronically triggered and chronically asked to help, you know, heal the body, they eventually get worn out and tired. And so they recruit the adaptive immune system. So all of our you know, B cells come and start to make these antibodies. And at some point, you know, they might go astray and start making an autoantibody against some protein in our body or some antigen in our body. And so um, I do a large autoimmune uh, panel, and I very often will find um, an autoantibody. And based on what that autoantibody is, can help sort of tailor treatment or target treatment And so I actually do quite a bit of IVIG kinds of treatments for those. You know, I see a lot of very severely chronically ill and I find these autoantibodies. And so sometimes just sort of doing symptomatic relief with different medications, doesn't really get them to where they need to be. So I'll do more systemic kind of immunomodulation kinds of therapies like IVIG. Um, And so, and that is helpful for a lot. And again, not, I mean, there's, again, there's no blueprint, right? So nothing really seems to help everyone. Otherwise this, you know, everyone would know the answer. So it wouldn't be a controversy or, or a mystery. Um, so I do a lot of IVIG. Um, sometimes if I'm suspecting a CCI kind of picture, as, and that's an anatomical concern, I do do the workup for CCI, which is a traction trial, as well as some imaging of the cervical spine. And I work with um, a neurosurgeon and I send him um, the the imaging as well as the traction trial. And then he decides if it's a potential surgical candidate and sort of takes it from there. And I explain that you know, all of, all of our medications and even all of our fancy treatment alternatives won't fix an anatomical issue if that's what it really is. Though there's some dialogue going on now that, well, if you reduce the inflammation and sort of hone up the ligaments, perhaps the CCI isn't as much of a concern, which may or may not be true. I don't think we know that yet. Um, we're still even learning about CCI itself. Um, so I, I might go down that route with regards to potential surgical intervention for them. Um, but we do a whole lot of things just sort of trying and and really the root, the root goal is to like reduce the inflammation in any way we can. And so Mm -hmm. various ways of which you can try to do that. So, and I do a lot of mitochondrial medicine. I, I, um, sort of one of them, I I call it a hobby, but (laughs) 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 in the children's hospital, I do both pediatric and adult neurology. And so I used to work in the children's hospital out here and there was a mitoclinic and I worked there and I saw a lot of mito disease and then um, was also doing it for adults. And then I realized there's a whole mitochondrial dysfunction spectrum. So it's not just about a mutation in the mitochondrial DNA or the the nuclear DNA, Um, there's a spectrum of dysfunction. And of course it makes sense because when there's sort of chronic inflammation, the electron transport chain just doesn't work as well and doesn't create as much energy as the cell needs to continue to either fight or to heal. And so um, we sort of sometimes will work on that. We do mitochondrial assessments. I do a functional assay of, my, of the electron transport chain enzyme complexes to sort of see how they're working. And based on whether they're working or not i I'll tailor treatment a little bit, so it's really like a, an all out approach, I guess you know, and i I always say to patients, "I'll do as little as you want or as much as you want because we can go down a lot of routes here, you know, and mm-hmm. sometimes I, I say, and I always say we can stop when we find something and work on that and just see if, if that gets us where we need to be, and if so, great, um, but if not, we'll continue to look so um so yeah, so I know that's probably I, I think you probably wanted a more concise answer, but
2: no.
0: <laughs> I mean, no, we every- did not. <laughs>
2: no, we love details. <laughs> yes, like, yes.
1: You know, every patient just sort of presents like their own story. I mean, that's what Dr. Bluest and I were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. You know, everyone just has their own story. And, and that story really, no matter what it is, even if it's early childhood events, for example, that plays a role in yeah. who they are today and how they're presenting and how they're even tolerating their symptoms. I mean, some people mm-hmm. are stoic. So Yet telling me about all of this pain that they have and all these debilitating symptoms, um, and then some people are are not as stoic and just can't tolerate it and just don't want to live this way, kind of you know, presentation. So it's it's across the board really,
0: and it's really fascinating because it sounds like you do such a, a wide range of things for the for the workup itself, and then also for the treatment from juicing which, you know, is, is, yeah, yeah I, I, I love that. I think that's fantastic. I mean, as you were talking about like the mitochondrial disorders and things, I'm thinking, you know, probably the more you learned about a lot of these things and you were taking care of your own um, healing after your surgery, right? Absolutely. And how do I get as many nutrients in my body as I can? And that's kind of how you came up with with that, is it? Is that when you got into the juicing? I I'm, I want oh, yeah. to circle back to that a little bit. I, yeah, I'm happy <laughs> to. I did. I started to
1: read about all of the qualities of certain plants, um, you know, vegetables and fruits, and I was trying to eat them all, and I couldn't. And I was reading <laughs> this
2: juice book,
1: um, and uh, I realized that I can juice all of these things. And so I bought myself a very inexpensive juicer. And I just started to throw things in the juicer, and I found that I played with certain um, quantities of, you know, fruits, and and uh, and I was able to make it actually palatable and taste good, but also have additional nutrients. And I just started juicing, and within a couple of weeks, I did it every single morning. The first thing I did in the morning, even before my coffee, which everyone, anyone who knows me knows that I love my coffee, but (laughs) I did it first thing in the morning. And within a couple of weeks, the the difference in my day, specifically in the energy that I had, is was incredible um, and I recognized that it, it was really the only, the only change I had made at that time was juicing, and I was actually in active recovery from a seven hour brain surgery at the time. Wow. So I felt, I felt like I could do anything. I felt, and honestly, it was such a huge difference. And so I've just continued on and that was 2015 and I still do it to this day. I mean, I, you know when I travel obviously I don't get to do it every day. Um, but I do it to this day and I, I basically preach it to my patients because I, I, do, I really am a firm believer that the foundations of health are probably the most important thing that we can do. So like everything that I add on, I think really, if, you're, if the foundations aren't there, it's not gonna, it's, it, may, it may not be effective at all, but it certainly won't be as effective as it possibly could be. So if you're not sleeping well, if you're not eating well, if you're not moving every day, if you're not finding ways of managing your stress then, you know, all the treatments, all the meds, all the supplements, all the fancy things that we do, um, really are, are, they might work, but they won't be as sustainable is my opinion. Right. right. Um, I think that we, we've just gotten so far away from what we can do on our own and we become reliant on, you know, on, I think medicine, but I think, I think food is our medicine. So we should focus in on that first and then everything we, everything we add is just sort of icing on a cake.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And,
0: but no cake. <laughs> <laughs> not on a regular basis anyway. <laughs> not on a regular
1: basis. Yesterday right. was my birthday, and so I had a piece
0: of cake. <laughs> oh, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> happy birthday. And it's just so interesting because then you you use things from juicing all the way to IVIG and mm-hmm. working up the craniocervical cervical instability and doing the traction trials and and helping people get to the right neurosurgeon and then have yeah. neurosurgery sometimes. So it's the full gamut is, is really, oh, yeah,
1: we do every, I mean, I won't leave a stone unturned. i so I'm, yeah, wow. I'm with the patient on the journey. And again, it will start with what are you eating today with like, I'm going to give you some fancy stuff, you know, and then I'm going to send you to neurosurgeons and we're going to do lots of systemic treatments and, you know, no. so, yeah, so
0: we do it, we do it all that 's fantastic and and part of what when i the more I started understanding what you do, and I thought this is so exciting because I remember when I went through uh, medical school and residency and i I, <laughs> I I have to say I thought neurology that 's a field i couldn 't do because there's just not a lot you can do for people, but you are you have found a way to help people in a way that is such a unique approach and i'm so excited about this book that you have been working on i can't wait for that to come out i'm gonna buy a copy for sure and um you know share that with lots of people i know there's a lot of patients with uh, that have bendy conditions that have movement disorders like dysautonomia i'm thinking of um i'm sorry not dysautonomia uh dystonia right. <laughs> too many things that start with dys right um <laughs> And, and I've had some patients that have really, really significant um you know uh, movement disorders, movement abnormalities. Can you tell us a little bit about about that and what you what you see and how you treat those?
1: I think it depends upon the kind of dystonia that they have I think um I don't really understand the physiology behind why there's such a large percentage of hypermobile patients who have some form of dystonia, but I do see it fairly frequent. It's usually very transient when it's um, very painful. Obviously, I'll use medication. Sometimes we, if, it's, if, it, if it happens and it doesn't resolve, self-resolve on its own, um, then we do things like Botox injections trying to release it um, but of course, you know, Botox is not necessarily what, what you want when you're very hypermobile. But we do it very locally for dystonic kind of posturing of usually it's of the feet, occasionally it's of the hands. Um, and, and then we use some medications that just sort of release the muscles just so the dystonia is not as painful or as prolonged and can potentially even prevent it. Um, the, the physiology behind the connection there is—I'm not completely sure. I've done, in fact, in some patients, I was so curious about it that I thought, do, do they have an underlying dystonia? And I've done genetic dystonia panels. Mm. Um, their dystonia Ooh. was so frequent and getting more and more severe that I thought maybe there's an underlying dystonia of which there are a lot of DYT genes, gene, uh, gene variants. And so we did a whole dystonia genetics panel, and I've done it three times and they were all negative. So I realize that it wasn't a genetic concern, it was more, again, a, a pathophysiologic concern related to the underlying etiology of hypermobility. So um, so I've even done nerve conduction studies over it, but have not found any abnormalities. So it's, very, it's a very interesting question, and I do treat it, but I don't completely understand it
0: just yet. Sure.
1: Do and, you have and- any insight
0: into that? I mean, do you? Well, I'm thinking of one patient of mine in particular, and... I'm not a neurologist and I, I apologize. I may even be using the wrong, if she has a, she has admirable movements. And then I, you know, in terms of like trying to describe exactly what, which type of movement it is, I'm not completely sure, but, but I did treat her initially with um, a lot of CBD mm-hmm. and she got a lot better. And, but then she couldn't afford it anymore because, you know it's not prescription and, and you know insurance doesn't cover it or anything. And, and the dose that she was needing was you know pretty significant. So I wrote mm. her a prescription for Epidiolex and she responded extremely well to that. I mean, it went away completely. The first time that she, she, she had more like of a shaking type um, and she's had Chiari surgery. She's had spinal cord release for tethered cord. And my first visit with her, the entire, I think I had a five hour visit with her and the entire time she was shaking like this. Now you can see me, people. People on listening to this later won't be able to see what I'm doing. But yeah. she was shaking like this the entire time, mm-hmm. and um, and I know that from I because I'd read some I had read notes from other doctors that she had seen. Some of them ac- accused her of uh, faking it.
1: Yeah. So wait, so just showing me so that's not dystonia. So okay. yeah, So you're, um so I do see dystonia, which is more of a of a of a posturing. Okay. Like mm-hmm. cramping, if you will. A locking
2: up. Yeah. 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 A up. Yep.
1: So, um, but what you're referring to, what I've also seen sometimes it's tremor. Um, other times it's myoclonus and, and definitely with a CCI kind of picture, I see a lot of spinal myoclonus. Okay. And that definitely be treated with epidiolex. So dystonia, not so much, but okay. any kind of myoclonus without question to be treated by epidiolex. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also even have central origin of myoclonus, so coming from the brain, as opposed to the spinal cord. Um, but often when there's a hypermobile patient who has any kind of tremor or myoclonus, it's usually spinal cord um, init- initiation. Um, and it would definitely be treated with things like CBD and epigallax would be responsive, I should say. Not everyone responds, but I, but I see a lot of response to those kinds of medications. Sure. So yeah, I see that fairly often. And, and that physiology is a little bit more understandable in, in regards to just because of the Um, you know, the meninges is connected tissue, right? So, and then you Mm -hmm. have kind of, you have a Chiari and you've had surgical um, uh, intervention so that there's some manipulation that has been done to the the cord or the brain or the the skull. And so you can ultimately result in sort of abnormal or aberrant, I should say, um, signaling pathways, if you will, that sort of results in some of those movements. Sure. Absolutely treated with CBD.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. And, and I know that we, you had mentioned earlier on small fiber neuropathy, and this is something that I'm definitely, uh, you know, super interested, I, I think is also very underappreciated in this population of people with um, Ehlers-Danlos syndromes and other hypermobility disorders. Um, what, what else can you tell us about small fiber neuropathy in terms of how you work it up, how you treat it, that kind of thing?
1: So I, um, I work it up by doing, I do a neuropathy panel in general, which has a lot of things on it, but includes lots of, you know, like your thyroid and certain nutrient um, um, levels um, that can result in any kind of neuropathy. Um, Sometimes I'll even do like protein electrophoresis, looking for blood dyscrasias even, which can usually result in a large fiber type neuropathy, not necessarily small fiber, but you know sometimes you could see small fiber superimpose on large fiber. But I see a lot of small fiber neuropathy um, with chronic disease, and I definitely see it with dysautonomia because the small fibers do have a role in our autonomic nervous system and our autonomic functions. So, um, so I will definitely see it with uh, abnormal, at least an abnormal cue starting the autonomic testing, if not more abnormalities. Um, and then I further, I, I usually then next, especially in this particular patient population that we're referring to in this conversation, I do an autoimmune workup for it. I do a sensory neuropathy autoimmune panel. Uh, I send out for that um, to look for autoantibodies that are, common, are commonly known to cause sensory neuropathies. Um, and I would say about maybe... 10 to 15% of the time, I find one of those autoimmune antibodies. I think antibodies are interesting. I think we look for what we know, right? I think that they're... (laughs) It seems like every year we're told about new autoantibodies that we identify. I mean, even take the world of Myasthenia gravis, like I feel like every year or other year or so there's another autoantibody associated with that diagnosis. So we, you know, now we have to check for five different antibodies opposed to one. So I think, you know, there are just antibodies out there that are yet to be discovered. And so we don't always find an antibody, which can sometimes be the obstacle when you're trying to get um, insurance approval for IVIG, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I always get happy when I see an autoantibody and not because I'm happy that the patient has an autoimmune disorder because I feel like I can finally get them appropriate treatment. Um, So I do do an an entire autoimmune workup for small fiber neuropathy. Um, And then, like I said, the autonomic study. So then I, depending upon, of course, what comes back, what's positive, what's negative, you know, if it's it's very painful, I can use a lot of analgesics. I think it's often related to mast cell. I do a lot of mast cell kind of work with them. If it is autoimmune, like I said, I do a lot of immunomodulation usually um, with IVIG, sometimes with oral modulation. Um, It depends the role the small fiber neuropathy is actually playing, right? So some people don't even know they have small fiber neuropathy until I do a skin biopsy, but it's only because I suspect it based on every other symptom that they have. Um, And so... I think that it, it just ultimately depends upon what the etiology and what it's, it coexists with that I, that I base my treatment off of. You know we do do a lot of other things here. We do a lot of so things small neuropathy is also responsive to kind of, certain kind of oxygen therapies. I do he- hyperbaric oxygen, which is very, very helpful for the symptoms. Mm. Fiber neuropathy. We also do the Vasper system here. I don't know how much you know about the Vasper system. I think it's incredible, and I think everyone should own their own, except they're super expensive. So, but <laughs> it's basically um, a low-intensity exercise bicycle, is what it looks like, but it's it's not a, an exercise bicycle. It's and it's with cooling and 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 constriction. So you have like basically blood pressure cuffs on your arms and on your thighs, and then there's the ice water that sort of flows through those cups. And then you have your bare feet on ice-cold plates, and then you have an ice-cold thing around your neck. And so with the cooling and the blood restriction, it actually helps to increase the delivery of oxygen at an exponential force so that there's extra perfusion along with vasodilation from the cooling. And so this really enhances oxygen perfusion. And there are a ton of studies that have shown that it reduces inflammation, that it improves cognition, that it, it improves the the production of like anabolic hormones that help us to build muscle and to maintain muscle. Um, it, 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 it's, it's incredible. In fact, we're currently starting a study here on the vasper and mitochondria function because it's also known to reduce oxidative stress. So my hypothesis is that it'll improve electron transport chain function. So it'll improve oxidative phosphorylation. Um, and so um, we're doing a study on, on that in the mitochondria. Um, and so people really have gotten, I mean, I've had some people with true cognitive dysfunction um, that uh, go on the VASPER and do the program and actually I mean, even their spouses and their partners and, and people that they work with notice a, a, a huge improvement in their mental clarity, loss of brain fog. So, um, so it's, I think it's a really great technology. NASA uses it, um, you know, the military uses it, uh, professional sports teams use it because it really aids in recovery. So it used to mm-hmm. be just used for the very elite and the very fit. But now it's sort of, it's now migrating into the therapeutic and medicinal world because people recognize the possibilities with this kind of technology. So I think that, um, I think that that's, that's when it's very pop- It was so popular here that we ha- we got a second one. So we have two VASPERS now.
2: Wow. Wow. Yeah.
1: It's really incredible. So I can't even get on it anymore. I have to come in on the weekend.
2: <laughs> you have to make an appointment.
1: <laughs> exactly. So we do we do. We offer that. And so a lot of our, of, of our patients, especially the mobile ones who don't really have an easy time exercising, as you know, mm-hmm. right. So, but this is something that they're completely supported and seated. We even have attachments that it helps them move if they need help. Like I've even had ALS patients on it. So wow. there are attachments for anyone, right? So a- there's no one who cannot use it. Um, and so I really, I recommend it regularly. So we do a lot of oxygen therapies. We do some ozone um, injections for joints, certainly, because a lot of our patients, you know, their joints are de- are degenerating. So we do some, we do PRP and prolotherapy, and ozone injections, and then, you know, we do occasionally do stem cells. I re- I recently gave a talk at the International Cell Society meeting um, about how stem cells um, have been shown to basically transfer their new and naive and young mitochondria to damaged and aged cells. So they basically give these old cells some baby mitochondria and that really ups its energy game, right, to heal itself and, and become a young cell itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so you know, we can go as far as that, although usually I, I, you know, we get a lot of great response well well before that. But so my, my point is, is that I've, I've looked at everything <laughs> that, that could possibly help. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and so we have our, our few favorites, you know, that really seem to work for a lot of people. And that's really what we focus on.
0: I, I love that about the Vasper because I'm thinking about um, a number of patients that, that I have seen with EDS that have very, very low testosterone levels, like free oh, testosterone, yeah. basically yeah. undetectable. And um, testosterone plays a really important role in pain.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So there is actually studies about the vasper and testosterone it increases testosterone levels yes absolutely huh.
0: so that's that is really interesting yeah you do a lot of really fascinating things in your practice yes. and and another one that i wanted you to talk, you know share with us about is about peptides and well let's i'll ask you about the peptides first tell us about peptides what you're doing with peptides
1: uh, pept- so uh, we do a lot with peptides. So one of the things in this population that has really been a game changer for a lot of people in pain is something called BPC-157. And these are physiologic peptides. They're just a string of amino acids that are the same amino acids we have in our bodies. Um, they're compounded in a pharmacy. They have a shelf life. Um, and so they're viable in that regard. Because I, I only say that because I see a lot of things out there on the shelves, you know, any, any woman who's like looking for face creams, I see with peptides, but if it's sitting in a in a jar on a shelf, I'm not sure how viable they are. But regardless, <laughs> peptides that we get from compounding pharmacies um, that really help to regenerate some cells that have been repaired, that have been damaged and need repair. And so BPC-157 has been, and there's a lot of literature on it that, that ha- has really decreased pain. Um, they, they, it either comes in a capsule form. So it actually helps a lot of our Sibo patients and our, you know, those with gastrointestinal distress, mm-hmm. um, especially if it's been chronic, um, it also helps um, for any kind of pain. You can do local injections. You can just do systemic injection, systemic meaning like just put in the abdomen for a full body kind of effect. But some patients we have higher dosages and, and we put have them put them in the joints. They can do it on their own. Some some feel more comfortable having us do it, but. Um, so it's really been really remarkable for um, patients. And then there's some other peptides that I like that help to support the immune system, like the thymocins. Um, and I find that, you know, and I do them for three months at a time, and then we sort of take a break and we sort of just reassess and see how their symptoms are. But I have found that, and there are a lot of peptides, and I would, I would say that here in this clinic, we probably have like five or six that we are really big fans of. Um, there's a couple that we use for cognitive support Um, uh, as well as for pain and then for immune support and uh, antimicrobial type of activity. And uh, so we just generally go to this handful of peptides that have really been effective for a lot of people.
0: Wow. And you do IV therapies also. Tell us about that. Yeah, we do
1: a lot of nutritional IV therapies. We also do an IV mito boost, which is sort of the, the the electron transport chain has cofactors and substrates. And so we tried, if you feed the electron transport chain cofactors and substrates that it may not have enough supply of, it doesn't work as well. So we basically like to support the mitochondria as best as we can with some IV formulations. And we do like IV vitamin C, we do glutathione. So we do things that just sort of help support the physiology. I don't really bill them as curative on any level, but they do what you know with regards to what we're trying to heal and what we're trying to treat. They are supportive. Um, they are supportive therapies and ancillary therapies that are very very effective um, when when they use it as part of a program. So that's what we do with the, with mm-hmm. the IV therapies.
0: Fabulous that you you have such a a range of things that you're that you're treating and. I love the fact that although your background is in neurology, but it's also in integrative medicine,
2: mm-hmm. and so
0: you're treating really the whole patient, although the brain is the most important thing that we have, so, and that's, you know. That's what uh, I always
1: say. Uh, after my surgery, lying on the couch just saying to my husband, you know, who am I without my brain? Like, I can't believe this happened to me. Like, who are we without our brains? I mean, right, right. Most important organ, because I know that there are important organs, and I think my specialist friends would get. (laughs) I don't know. I think the heart is just as important, which it is. But the brain is who we are, like literally Mm -hmm. figuratively, right? It's who we are. It's our personality. It's our emotions. It's our interactions. It's who we are. So I think all we can do to protect it, uh, I think we should, and that's what Mm -hmm. I try to help people do who really don't know how to. And then, of course, you know, once once your body is is in a state of, you know, disease of any sort, um, or inflammation, even, you just sort of need more help sometimes, which is, you know, why, again, from the beginning of our conversation, the earlier you get started, the better off you, you, will, you will be mm-hmm. You're off, you know, needing lots of, of interventions and help.
0: Right, right. So if you, you know, right now, gro- grocery stores are filled with all kinds of things that we really should not be eating. (laughs) I mean, obviously, you know, they're, they're, like you said, it was your birthday yesterday and, you know, um, and we don't, you know, we don't need to get, get overly restrictive every single day, all day, every day, but, but we do need to be mindful, right? And so the things that you talked about in the very beginning about nutrition and about sleep Mm -hmm. and about managing stress, I mean, those are so, so critically important. I Mm -hmm. agree. Yeah. So so what else did, is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to share? And can you let us know how people can learn more about you and about your practice? I think we covered a lot. I mean, I, <laughs> I, think, I think what Jillian and I have built
1: here, I think is really incredible because um, I, I do believe in the gut brain axis. I think that we have found ways of, of not only um, learning about our patients because I, I think that the patient-doctor relationship is super important because I, I really need to understand a patient to really understand what they're here for, right? There's so much that goes into a human being um, and I I, need to know, I like to know them, you know, and sometimes it, that takes more than one visit, unfortunately, just because of the nature of medicine these days in terms of time. But so I think that what we, what we try to do is we really get to know our patient and their lives and how their symptoms are interfering in their lives and um, and then we get to understand what their biggest concern are because obviously to me, at least their first visit, I want to at least be sure that I address their prominent concern, the reason that brought them here. And then, but we go beyond that and we ask a lot of questions and we then, as I've already discussed, we do a lot of evaluations, a lot of diagnostic workup. And then Jillian really helps, she just corrects the gut, she's great at like, traumatic experiences life, she's got this, she's a certified Ayurvedic practitioner. So she's got this Ayurvedic wisdom that she brings with it. And then I focus in on on the brain, the central nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, the autonomic nervous system. And we sort of bring it together and we come up with treatment plans. We do do a lot of um, type of, genetic kind of workups that really focus in on certain SNPs that make each each of us an individual. And it's not the same direct-to-consumer kind of SNP testing that, you know, 23andMe and other kinds of companies offer. It really dives into the different metabolic pathways that go on. You know, our as you know, our bodies are just like tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of pathways that happen each and every day without us even doing anything. So we really focus in on where... Um, Any one of those pathways can possibly result in something that we can intervene on that might help a symptom or so. Um, So we do a lot, and that's all part of the workup that we do. And so, and then we just sort of come up with different protocols for patients. We have, you know, Protocols for just about everything. Because like, uh, we find patients actually wanted it that way. I mean, we used to sort of be like, you know, a patient will just sort of decide what does what they need. But I think patients really understand it better when it's in a package. And I, I, I get mm-hmm. that. Um, So we sort of did design certain packages for your prominent symptoms and where we're going to start with this package, and then we can go on from there. So I guess I've, yeah, so that's sort of what our clinic does. And I think that Jillian and I have, have formed a really great partnership. And then, of course, we have Dr. David Kaufman here, who is the infectious guru. I mean, he just sort of understands that entire infectious workup.
0: He's amazing.
1: He is incredible. And I wouldn't know what I know about infectious workups if it weren't for him, because obviously that plays a large role in this patient population with regards to infectious exposures. We also have a psychiatrist here, actually, Dr. Dan Krashen, who mm-hmm. um, works on, he's a great pain psychiatrist. He used to run the chronic fatigue um, clinic at Harborview Medical Center, which is a, a large well-known hospital out here, at least in Washington state. Um, and he he's a he's a pain doc in general. He does a lot of pain interventions, and he's a great pain psychiatrist, and just a great psychiatrist overall. So I feel like our clinic just has a lot of uh, to offer people, just not in terms mm-hmm. of the piece, but also in terms of the treatment options. And then, um, yeah, I think otherwise, I think we. Could... <laughs> I feel <really laughs> like I ramble a little bit. Do I ramble?
0: Not <laughs> at all. No. Oh my gosh, no. Definitely. I just
1: get so excited about what we do and so passionate. Right. You know? Like. I'm in this world where like I'm finally seeing people getting better, and even if it's slowly, you know and mm-hmm. so, which, which is hard in, in some specialties, especially one of, of neurology, you know so mm-hmm. it's it's exciting, actually, and I think we're on the cusp, I think all of us, especially in our group, um, I think we're on the cusp of something big, I, and uh, I hope that we just sort of continue to contribute to the science and contribute to the to the knowledge base and, and educate other doctors. Um, so that we can move forward and, and really start making a, a big a big difference in people's lives. Well,
0: yes. I think you're making a big difference already. I mean it's it's very exciting and I I I loved hearing more, you know, on, on your podcast for healing neurology, right? Um, yes. I, I, I loved hearing your story and hearing from Jillian and her story with Outward Outward Bound, right? She did oh, some yeah. with oh, that. Yeah. And, yeah. She's amazing. Yeah, she yeah. Yeah, she's she's amazing. So so if people want to get more information about your practice, um, where should they go? We have a
1: website, so centerforhealingneurology.com. We have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram page. I'm I'm not I I, I really don't know social media all that well. We definitely do our best. Um, but you. Certainly, find out at least a lot of information between our Facebook and our website. There's definitely a lot of information there. I very often will post articles on the Facebook page that I think are of interest to our patient population, um, and then our website has all the services we have to offer. We are. Uh, in- midst of actually planning a reconstruction of that website because we have added so many different programs and protocols in the past six months that our website doesn't necessarily reflect yet. Um, But I still think there's a lot of good information up there actually. And so that's, that's where I would recommend people go.
0: Okay, well, fabulous. Well, Dr. Ruhoi, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today and coming on the Bendy Bodies podcast. Um, this has been such great information and, and I yes. know everyone's going to be really, really excited. So, Well, I, I was really happy to talk with you guys. This was really fun. So thank you for inviting me. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, it was great to chat with you, Jennifer, as always. As always. As always. And you have been listening to the Bendy Bodies podcast with the Hypermobility MD. Today, our guest has been Dr. Eileen Ruhoy, medical director and founder of the Center for Healing Neurology in Seattle, Washington. If you've enjoyed this program, please like, share, subscribe, and leave a review this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Please see your own medical team prior to making any changes to your healthcare. Bendy Bodies original music is by Andrew Sabino and sound editing is by Rhett Gill. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time on Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.